Well, this morning we are going to be continuing through our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, if you are following along, we're going to skip a big chunk because last fall in our study of the eight miraculous signs of John, we studied the feeding of the 5,000 at the beginning of John 6. And then right on the heels of that is another miraculous sign when Jesus walks on water, two very exciting accounts in the Bible. And uh, we went through those in some detail last fall. And afterwards, I got to thinking, man, it would be great if we just went back and did the book of John and all the stuff that comes in between and follows on the heels of those. Uh, Those are great um, and very important stories in the Gospel of John, which provide important context for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And we start off here in verse 22. And it says, on the next day. And of course, that next day means that the day prior was when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when he walked on water during the night. And what we have here when it says, on the next day, it's talking about the next day immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. So verse 22 in chapter 6, we pick it up there. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So this is the context. The previous day, of course, Jesus, with this great throng of followers, perhaps as many as 20,000. We don't know the exact number. They only numbered the men, and that was 5,000. But counting women and children that may have also been present, it was a huge throng. They go out to a wilderness location where Jesus does this amazing miracle where with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, he miracles up enough food for this entire crowd, so much so that afterwards there are baskets left over. And that the result of that is that the crowd is so incredibly enthusiastic, not only about what Jesus has done in creating all of this food out of nothing, basically, and also the wonderful things that he was teaching, that they wanted to make him king right then and there. Let's just grab him and announce him king. And Jesus uh, didn't want to be a part of that, so he withdrew. The disciples slogged their way through the night, rowing across the sea against a heavy wind, And about the middle of the night, right there in the middle of the darkness, they see this ghostly figure walking toward them on the water. They're terrified. They think it's a ghost. But then Jesus calls out to them. Jesus gets into the boat with them, and immediately they're at the other shore. Now, those are the two miraculous signs that happened on the previous day, which is a momentous day. A lot of big, significant things. The crowd is whipped up into a very excited frenzy about Jesus and all of his potential, at least as they imagine him. And so in the morning, what do they do? They go to find him. Let's keep the party going. But he's not there. Now the previous day, there had only been one boat, and they knew that the disciples had left without Jesus. So a quick scan of the shore, they can't find him. Boats show up. They say, well, let's go across to where his disciples went. Maybe we'll find him there. So chapter, verse 22, we pick it up with what I just read. Now here's the flow of the verses that are going to follow on the heels of this. Verses 25 through 33, Jesus is going to answer three questions. And in doing so, he is going to challenge some faulty assumptions 
that these would-be followers of his hold about him and salvation. And then in verses 34 through 59, Jesus is going to give a really phenomenally unpopular sermon. The kind of sermon, and this is what I love about John chapter 6, it starts with this sort of mega church following, thousands and thousands of people following Jesus, hanging on his every word. And by the end of the chapter, there's just 11 guys and Judas, <laughs> who's a demon. And in fact, Jesus is saying, are you guys going to leave me too, right? This is how it ends. And then in verses 60 through 71, we come to the resulting fallout. So that's kind of the flow of the chapter. Let's tackle these three questions first. Verse 25. When they found him, that's the crowd, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So the crowd comes looking for Jesus, and the first thing that Jesus does is challenge their motives for doing so. And really, this is the question, I think, um, that hangs over a service like this, which is, why are we here? Why, what is it that has drawn us into the presence of Jesus this morning? They are apparently, at least this is Jesus' analysis, and he knows what's in a man, they are apparently looking for food, more food, and perhaps they're also drawn to the spectacle of another working of miracles. And so they're kind of seeking out Jesus as this combination food truck and street performer. But they're missing the greater import and significance of Jesus. It's a bit like uh, in ancient Rome, the, uh, the poet Juvenal, he wrote about um, how the people would cry out to Caesar, we want bread and circus. Just, just keep the party going. We're not really interested in the deeper level of civic duty or your policies or what, you're, what it will mean for you to govern. Just give us bread and circus. We want bread and miracles. It's basically the same thing that they're seeking out Jesus. And Jesus, who knows what in a man, what's in a man, understands this about them. Whenever John makes mention of signs, as he often does in his gospel, and of course we covered this ad nauseum last fall, right? We really beat this drum to, to a tatter. But whenever Jesus mentions signs, he is referencing those miracles that Jesus did to reveal his glory which is to say to make visible through the miraculous work he did his excellence and power and goodness. So the signs existed to illustrate who Jesus is as well as to authenticate his claims about himself. So the signs were not just a demonstration of power. They were a vivid illustration of the very, his very nature and his very purpose. So when Jesus says, you're, you're not here, you're not here because you saw the signs, I think he means something, and I always pause when I put Jesus, words in Jesus' mouth, but I think it's fair to say that what he intends when he says this is something like, you're not seeking me out because you caught an inkling of who I am and what I'm all about, and you feel drawn to that. That's not why you're here. You're not here because you feel drawn to me. You're here because you want something from me. 
to you I am a means to another end. You love the gifts, but you have no particular regard for me as the giver or any particular awareness of my significance. Now, I'm willing to bet that at this point, some of us are pushing back in our hearts against what Jesus is saying, or maybe it would be more accurate to say that what we're pushing back against and questioning is Josh Tate's interpretation of what Jesus is saying. Is it really wrong to want things from Jesus? Don't we all want something from Jesus? Is that wrong? Don't we all come to Jesus wanting what he can provide? Isn't that the basis? And how is that any different from this crowd who comes to Jesus? They're hungry people, and he has the power to give them what's needed. Is that a wrong way to approach Jesus? Is that what I'm saying? After all, right here, Jesus says in his response to them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. Doesn't that sort of imply that it's okay to want something from Jesus so long as it is the right something? Maybe he's critical of this crowd not because they want something from him, but because they want the wrong thing. Maybe their vision of what Jesus can provide is too small, too earthbound, and Jesus is trying to reorient them toward greater things that are within his power to bestow. They want food that perishes, but Jesus wants them to think bigger and train their appetites on the food that endures to eternal life. Maybe that's what it is. But then some of you are probably pushing back against even that idea. Is it really wrong to look to God for bread? Temporary stuff. After all, in the Lord's Prayer, didn't Jesus himself encourage us to set in our model prayer to say, give us this day our daily bread. Is it wrong to want bread from God? Bread is kind of a stand-in for all the things that we need for life. God is our shepherd. Isn't it right and good to look, for, look to him for the provision of those things? So the tension that surrounds this opening exchange is really what this entire section of Scripture is all about, I think. This gets right to the heart of it in this opening exchange between Jesus and the crowd. Is the greatest need of mankind something or is the greatest need of mankind for someone? Which is it? Is it bread or is it the provider of bread that's needed? I think this question is the very heart and the central meaning of this passage and we see this expanded upon and explored further in the next exchange that Jesus has with the crowd remember Jesus just challenged them not to labor for food that perishes but to labor for the food that endures to eternal life apparently their minds focused in on the idea of laboring laboring to obtain which is like a drug for people um, soaked in the milieu of Judaism, which is a religion based on works. You can labor to obtain. And Jesus here uses that word labor. And so they focus in on that. 
And so their next question is basically, how do we do that? Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What is the formula? What boxes do we need to check to get what we want? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Here it comes. You ready? That you believe in him who he has sent. You have to trust somebody else to do it for you. This is what you must do. This second question that the crowd puts to Jesus seems to imply that they felt sure that if they wanted to, they were capable of doing what was needed. Tell us the price and we'll pay it. What must we do? And this reveals both their desire for salvation, don't we all want that? But it also betrays that at the root of their approach to obtaining salvation is a prideful insistence on self-sufficiency. To religious Jews, obtaining eternal life consisted again in finding the right formula, performing the works necessary to please God and thereby earning eternal life from him, to live in such a way that you put God in your debt. He owed it to you. This was their hope. So as it relates to this big central question, is the greatest need of man something or someone, let's see this. This crowd wants salvation. That's a thing. But they do not yet perceive their need for a savior. That's a person. They want salvation, but they think maybe I can save myself. They think I can get the thing, but they don't yet perceive that their greatest need is for someone. You might say salvation, savior. What's the difference? Isn't this just all semantics? Well, there's a big difference, I think. Do you remember from our study last week in chapter 5 when Jesus offered up witnesses to back him up on his extraordinary claims that he was equal to God? Because he's equal to God, because he is God, he could not appeal to a human being to establish his identity because that would put him in a position of dependence on man. That's very backwards. That would make man the authority who establishes God's identity. And the word of God is the highest, the final, the most ultimate source of all authority. There can be none above it. This is why Jesus rejected John the Baptist as a suitable witness to his claims. Even though what John the Baptist said about him was true, 100% true. He said, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. None other than God the Father could serve as the witness to authenticate and corroborate his claims to being the Son of God and the Messiah. God's the highest authority. There's none higher. And when he speaks, he does not appeal to another source as somehow more ultimate, more final, another layer needed to establish the truth of what he's saying. And something similar is playing out here in this passage. If those verses in John 5 were teaching that the highest and most final source of truth is God and his word, then these verses are teaching that there is nothing that should be desired by our hearts more than God himself personally. He should reign supreme in our thinking 
and in our affections. Our minds cannot find a greater authority than God, and our heart's affections cannot come to rest on anything more satisfying and good than the person of God. And just as we should never elevate the wisdom and opinions of men above God's word, we should never make anything other than God the great central desire of our hearts. The problem revealed in the second exchange between Jesus and the crowd is that they're stuck. They're stuck in this pattern of trying to get something they want from a God that they don't really. They love the gift, but they have no particular regard for the giver. He's just the one they have to do business with. They want the benefits of God more than the source of the benefits. And in this, they kind of roughly resemble a gold digger. Somebody who marries an heiress because the big pile of money that comes with her is what they want, and they're willing to marry her to get it. This is more or less what this arrangement is, and it's deeply dishonoring to Jesus. You know, when I got married to Sarah, I written into our vows, I think these were the words, were, I will forsake all others. That was part of the vows when we got married. Now, when I said, I do, to that idea, was I, say, was I saying something so crass as this? Sarah has some stuff that I want, and I guess I'll forsake all others if that's what I have to do to get it. Is that what I was saying? I hope not. Well, I know not. I was there. It was me. It was, it's not true. When I said, I'll forsake all others, what I was really saying, I was making a statement about her worth and her value to me. I was saying, I've been looking for somebody, and I've found it. The search is over. I'm forsaking all others. Last week, I quoted Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm forsaking all others. I found it. That's what I said. That's what I meant. But this crowd is coming to Jesus and saying, what do we have to do? What's the minimum price necessary to get the good thing from you that we want? <laughs> What's the, what, how much do I have to pay? And can we barter? Can we haggle on this? So this is what's going on. I think they want to walk away from God blessed, but basically independent of him. In this, they're like sheep who want protection, but not a protector. They want provision, but not a provider. They want the rod and the staff, but no shepherd, please. And it's important to see that Jesus, in his answer, redirects them from the thing they want, salvation, to the person they need, the Savior himself. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. You need me. What must we do, they ask? How can we get the thing? How much? And all of this reveals that they think their greatest need is for a thing. And maybe they might be able to get it if the price could just be disclosed by Jesus. But Jesus' answer corrects them and asserts that their greatest need is actually for him. So they said to him, 
This is an interesting point in the, in the thing. It's, it's very ironic to me. Re- it, remember as I read this that the previous day they witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. The very miracle that got them so worked up and excited about the potential that they were going to seize Jesus and make him king. They had seen everything they needed to see yesterday. But now that Jesus has confronted them with this truth, now they turn and they ask him this question. They they have the unmitigated gall to ask Jesus this question. Then what sign do you do? (laughs) That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Weren't they there yesterday? (laughs) Weren't they there? Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's amazing to me how quick, how short is the memory of man. You know, it's, seek and you shall find is never so true as when you're seeking to find fault. These people just instantly turn on Jesus and they say, you know what? Moses repeated that trick from yesterday. He did it a bunch of times. You miracled up grub once. Big deal. Moses did it a lot. What are you going to do? Show us. Prove yourself. And Jesus corrects them. It wasn't Moses who provided their ancestors with manna in the wilderness. He says it was God. Moses was the God's chosen instrument through which he worked that miracle, but Moses didn't do it. And in fact, he's already said that God has granted me the powers to do that I'm, that I'm doing. That's been established in previous passages. This crowd has been introduced to that idea. And Jesus is here saying again, God's the one who's doing it. He says that just as the manna mysteriously came down from heaven, so too has he come down from heaven in the mystery of the incarnation. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the first of six times in the coming verses when he will say that he has come down from heaven. Verse 33, 38, 41, 50, 51, and 58. He says this repeatedly, and this is a very provocative statement. He's saying that unlike all of you, I don't find my origins in my birth. I preceded my birth. I've come down from heaven. I'm of eternal, divine origins. This would not have been lost on the crowd. His claim to heavenly divine origin is unmistakable, and rather than manna, which was sent from God to address a temporary carnal need, this is God coming in person to offer himself to address our deeper, eternal, spiritual need from which all those lesser needs flow. And this crowd does not grasp that truth. They just say, can we have some more bread, please? They're begging dimes from a billionaire. He stands ready to give them eternity and all that goes with it, and all they can think to say is, can we have some more of that bread from yesterday? That would be enough for us. 
They say, after he's done explaining this, they say to Jesus, Sir, give us this bread always. But don't give him too much credit here. <laughs> this is very much uh, reminiscent of what the woman at the well said to Jesus in chapter 4. He remember that in that passage he was talking about the living water and he had told her that whoever drinks from the water in the well would just get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that Jesus gives will never be thirsty again just in the same way that here he says those people who ate the manna they just got hungry again but I'm coming down from heaven to give you the bread of life that's eternal. And the woman at the well said, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Even though he's speaking spiritually, she's only able to think of it in the terms of what she knows. Water, lugging water back to her house. That would be great. I'd never have to do that again. So when they say, Sir, give us this bread always, they're just thinking of this great eternal supply of bread. And this points us again to this truth that John keeps coming back to and pointing us toward that unless a person is born again, they're not able to see the kingdom of God. We must be born again to see and perceive spiritual truths. And Jesus is going to ram this home, this idea home, in the next verses. It's fascinating to me. Um, Well, it's very encouraging to me. If you have ever witnessed to somebody and had them not respond favorably, take heart from the fact that Jesus did the same thing. (laughs) When Jesus addresses the Pharisees, and he says, I'm telling you these things so that you might believe, they don't go on to believe. And when he, I take great encouragement because Sometimes I get up here behind the pulpit and I lay an absolute egg up here. It was not a good sermon. <laughs> and she, but that's on me. Jesus here preached a perfect sermon and the crowds walked away. We have to have some humility, I think, as we go through life as Christians. We weren't meant to shoulder the burden of another person's salvation. The church is this strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. All you can do is obediently, yieldedly, faithfully do what God has called you to do, and it's up to him to lend the miraculous working to that simple human act. I'm reminded of this very often as a parent, where I look at the Garden of Eden, where the first rebellious, wayward children ever came into existence. That happened in the perfection of the garden with God himself presiding. If that can happen in the garden, can it happen in the Tate House? Yeah. I look at my five children, and they are all free moral agents. And their freedom is horrifying to me because they can, choose it to walk, they can use it to walk away from God eternally. But it's also very promising because it's only in freedom that they can truly lay hold of Jesus and say, I want you personally. Any parent knows That more than wanting your child to come with you to church, you want them to want to come to church. (laughs) And that wanting to come to church is only born of freedom. That can only be something they do when they're not compelled to do it. And so we come to this point here where Jesus says that only if you're given the ability to see can you see. And then he says these words. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those who come to Jesus are given to him by the Father. This is a work of God. It is not a work of man. And he's going to go on to say in the verses that follow, in verse 44, very famously, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Another very decisive statement in which Jesus says, The decisive agent in your salvation is a working of God. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I've got a long block of scripture here to read next. Um, But before I do that, let me just say this as a quick aside. Some people, when some Christians, when we come to this thought, when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him. Some of us are instantly tempted to make the connection then, well, then evangelism is unnecessary. If God the Father draws a person, and that drawing power is undeniable, Why do I have anything to do with it? Do I need to do the awkward, risky thing when God the Father draws people to himself? Maybe I don't need to, because that's scary and weird and awkward, and it would be great if I didn't have to, and it still went on as planned. (laughs) And I want to just redirect your thinking a little bit. This truth is given to us not to make us feel that evangelism is unnecessary, but to make it hopeful. Hopeful. How many of you know in your life someone for whom it is unimaginable that they would ever turn to Christ and embrace them personally as their Lord? You think there is nothing I could say, there is nothing that could happen that would ever bring them to a place where they want to talk about Jesus with me. Aren't you glad that what's needed is not more of you, but a miracle of God? I am. I have those people in my life. And this passage is not given to us to say, okay, I don't have to do anything. Remember, the church is this strange mingling of miraculous divine power and ordinary human faithfulness. But what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot get there by doing. You can't win a single soul unless God does the decisive, miraculous work in their heart. But that, does not, uh, that should not bring us to a place where we abdicate our calling. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. He will do it through this church, or this church will be swept aside as irrelevant, and he'll raise up another one. We can join God in what he's doing or we can just fade to black and make way for another movement of God in another church somewhere. Either we're evangelists or we're irrelevant. So that's not really where we should arrive at, but I think this passage is given to us so that we can be very hope-filled in evangelism because what's needed is a miracle. And that's absolutely what happens anytime anybody comes to Christ. 
And so we go out into the mission field expecting miracles because that's the only way anybody ever becomes a Christian. Now comes the very unpopular sermon. Are you ready? <laughs> this is what caused his megachurch following of thousands to dwindle to a very uncertain following of about 11. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever." And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Gross, right? I mean, that's just basically the basic human response to what just Jesus just said. Unless you eat my blood, flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And then it goes on from there into the fallout. People leave him. His disciples are entertaining the idea. Maybe we shouldn't even be with this crazy guy anymore. But in the end, Peter says, I think it's, uh, let's see, where is it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a beautiful statement from Peter in summary at the end. He states his belief in the worth and excellence of who Jesus is and his knowledge of those things that do come from him. You have the words of eternal life. But more than that, I know who you are. That's really the basis of who, Jesus, of who Peter, Peter's statement and why it's honoring to God. Something I want to point out in this passage is it's deliberately provocative, the language that he uses. He says, you have to feed on my flesh and drink my blood, which is not only a wild violation of Jewish law. 
it's very unclean, very much prohibido, <laughs> Old Testament. You can't do that. But it's also just on a very human level, offensive, isn't it? It's, a, it's an ugly idea. And something that I'm always struck by is Christianity is filled with ugly imagery. People walk around with crosses hanging on their chain, which if you strip that away from all of its meaning and significance, you might as well just be walking around with a hangman's noose as decoration or an electric chair. Uh, I remember once at our church in Florida where I pastored before, one of the songs that we had chosen to sing in church that particular Sunday was, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And on that particular Sunday, there was a visitor. We didn't often get visitors. I didn't know anything about this person or where they were coming from. If this was their first introduction to Christianity, I didn't know. But as we launched into the song, There is a fountain filled with blood. You're just like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) This is gross. (laughs) Or what about Jesus here saying, what about communion? Uh, In the first century Roman world, the Romans came to believe that Christians were practitioners of cannibalism. They had heard shadowy reports of this secret rite where people gathered to eat the flesh and drink the blood. And they thought maybe they're cannibals. Innocent people being washed in the blood of a I mean, wicked people washing themselves in the blood of an innocent man. All these things sound more like plot elements in a horror story than a Christian worship service. It's very provocative. But I think it is that, I think the reason why we talk in this way, even at the risk of being misunderstood or the risk of being offensive or jarring, is that this is how Jesus spoke about himself. Over the course of John chapter 6, resistance to Jesus and his message grows progressively stronger and stronger. In verse 41, his followers are grumbling because to them it seems like Jesus is maybe a little full of himself. In verse 52, they're disputing and questioning. In verse 60, many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? In verse 64, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. In verse 66, it says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The number of his followers dwindles from thousands to just a few. And all of this illustrates for me the truth of Matthew 7, 13 through 14. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When we check out verses 63 and 68, the link between them is that both refer to the words of Jesus as life-giving. Verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then after verse 66, where it says, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And again, Simon Peter gave that great answer, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're it. Peter had, and the other disciples had, who believed in Jesus, had been granted the ability to believe Jesus' words in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And to come back in closing to our first question, which I think this passage is meant to answer. What does mankind need most, something or someone? Why did Jesus speak this way? You have to eat me. (laughs) You, You see, he's not saying I have bread. He's saying I am bread. I don't have what you need. I am what you need. This is why he insists that they have to eat him. He is what will be life-giving to them. If he had said, I have the bread that you need, they would have made that the object of their desire. That's what they would have wanted. And Jesus would have been just become the person they had to do business with to get the thing. But Jesus says, you have to eat me. I'm what will give you life. Eternally. This brings us to all those great I am statements in the Bible. Jesus' teaching always terminated on himself. And the Gospel of John is just littered with these I am statements. He says, I'm the light of the world. I don't have the light. I am light. I'm the bread of life. I don't have bread. I am bread. I'm the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I don't open the door. I don't point you to the door. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the son of God. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know the way. I don't hold the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the true vine. I'm the vine. You are the branches. On and on and on and on again. And this is Jesus' point. You don't need something. You need me. Unlike John the Baptist or Elijah who pointed people away from themselves and toward God, Jesus' teaching is different because it centers on himself. Whereas Elijah or John the Baptist might have said, let me point you toward the light, which is exactly what John the Baptist does. Jesus says, I am the light. So why must we eat Jesus? In conclusion, here at our Christian worship service, at communion, why do we have the table of communion where we actually eat bread that symbolizes his broken body and drink a cup that symbolizes his spilled blood? It is a confession of the fact to God, we love who you are. We need you. As sheep, we don't just want green pastures, we want a shepherd. And yes, we know the myriad of benefits that flow from you, but we don't just love the gifts, we love who you are as the giver. We need you. We choose you. We want you. That's what the communion table is about. Communion is celebrating our communion with God, our relationship with him, the fact that we've been brought into this incredible eternal union with him. And so getting something from him simply won't do in this moment. We want to some way say, we want you. And that's how God has chosen for us to remember him. And it is a a flowing out of this teaching wherein Jesus said, what you need is me. And we respond heartily at the communion table by saying, we, we, yes, we want you. You are what we have laid hold of. So that's why we must eat Jesus. 
Because Jesus did not come to give us something, he came to give us himself. And communion is a celebration of that relationship. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and all the truth that it contains. Father, I get the sense that we just barely scratched the surface of all that Jesus said there in John 6. We could spend a lot more time for sure. But Father, what little we did cover, I pray, Lord, that you would multiply in our hearts. Father, I pray that we'd walk out of here in conversation with you that would continue throughout the week. Father, I pray for my friends here at State Road that you would meet us in wonderful ways in your word as we seek you this week in the Bible. And Father, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would draw us into a relationship with you more and more, that we would reject that fallen impulse that does exist in our hearts, God, to seek you out for things alone, even when we do not particularly feel drawn to you. Father, you have much to give. And Father, we rejoice in the many things that you have blessed us with. But Father, at the root of it all is a relationship with you. We love you. We love who you are. We don't obey your commands because by it we hope to get something from you. You've taken away any threat of punishment. And now, Lord, our following after you is just because we love the God who saved us. Father, help us to love you more and more. Draw us deeper and deeper into that true relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.